0: Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world change by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. Thanks, mate. Hello, everyone. Nice to see you. You're allowed to say hello back. But then when I ask rhetorical questions later, you're not allowed to answer them. It's very confusing. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Chris. It's really nice to see a whole bunch of fresh faces in the room. So like Jen said, if you're just kind of here checking us out, um, or if you're, you're trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing, um, if you're just here for, in Australia for four days, uh, uh, it's really great to have you. Welcome. Welcome to our home. Make sure you visit the welcome table we have up the back which um, it has a light box that we forgot to charge the battery for, but it's just... The, the candles are on, so you, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, but it's so very good to see you guys uh, this evening. We're starting a new series tonight, which is really fun. Um, the series is called Imago Day, and I'm going to explain what that means in a little bit. That's some Latin for you. I actually studied three in a Latin for the HSC. It was so good because it scaled really well. <laughs> And it was fascinating, but that's, a, that's your fun fact for the evening, um, is I, I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, but we're, we're looking at this series on identity. We're asking this foundational question of, um, who are you and why are you here? Um, and I'm really excited about this series because we're, we're, we're going through the New Testament. And we're looking at, apart from tonight, we're actually doing some Old Testament. But after tonight, we're looking through the New Testament uh, at some passages that talk about this incredibly important question of who we are. Um, and so we're going to have this week, we're going to have next week, we're going to then have a two-week break when uh, we're going to have Putty Putman come and speak to us, which is going to be really fun. Um, we're also going to have Kirk and Nick Delaney, who are the, uh, the pastors of Pine River Vineyard, uh, Rivers Vineyard in uh, Queensland, and they're also our national directors of the Vineyard Movement. They're going to come speak to us. So we have like a two-week break uh, where we have some like powerhouse people coming to speak to us, which is great. And then we're going to push on with this series after that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited for this one. Um, I want to start, though, by telling you a really brief story. And it, it, it's, it's a story from when I was about 13 years old. Um, someone gave me this, uh, this copy of a book. And the book is effectively it's a, um, a summary of philosophical thought since the time of the ancient Greeks up until now. But it takes the form of like a narrative. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of fictional uh, story that accompanies all of this, uh, this history. But in the opening chapter of this book, the main character, this um, young girl called Sophie, she gets this letter in the mail. It's, it's addressed to her by first name, and it doesn't say who it's from. And it simply contains a piece of paper that says, Who are you? I've got a slide for that one just so you can kind of visualize it. It says, who are you? Now, my 13-year-old self uh, was quite confident. I'm like, oh, obviously I know who I am. I'm I'm Chris. Like, I live in Sydney. Like, I kind of was like, yeah, I know who I am. But I thought about it a little bit harder. And I thought about what this question is really trying to ask. And my 13-year-old brain was like, I realized I don't actually have a good answer to that question. And it kick-started this, this kind of searching for me that ended up in me finding faith in Jesus. And so this question, for me, holds a lot of really personal significance. Um, I think, I think when, we, when we attempt to answer this question, who are you, like, when we try and get really deep into figuring out who we are, I think most of us tend to do one of two things. We, we go to one of two extremes. On one hand, I think what some of us do is we take this question, we put it in the too hard basket, we kind of push it under the rug, and we try and pretend it's not there. And what this looks like is we'll bury ourselves into our work or into our family or into our relationships or into our hobbies, and we'll kind of avoid having to answer the question, and we'll find our sense of identity from what we do, or who we know, or where we live. And you know what? The problem with this is that it actually works for a while. But then when, you know, you lose your job, or, um, or the relationship ends, um, or... You know, you sell the car. You kind of have to come back to this uncomfortable reality that you've been finding your relationship, you've been finding your identity in something that's not permanent, and you have to come back and you have to ask this question again. And so, I think some of us um, do this kind of sweep it under the rug approach, and we don't try, we don't really answer the identity question. I think others of us, and I think we're particularly guilty of doing this in the church. I think we'll particularly if you've grown up as a Christian, if you've heard talks on identity before, I think sometimes we can, we can sort of find a really good answer to this question in the Bible and then go, check, I've got it. Like, I understand who I am now. And, you know, I, I don't think that's wrong because I think God does provide incredible revelation about who we are. Like, we have these moments where, where God reveals our identity to us and it, and it it, it sort of quenches our soul's longing to answer this question. But here's what I think we do sometimes in the church, um, and particularly in the evangelical church. I think sometimes we go, okay, I've got my biblical answer for, who, for my identity now. I know all of the key proof texts for that, so I can check that and move on. But our answers to life's questions are always going to be contextual, aren't they? They're always going to depend on where we're at in a certain point of time. And I think sometimes if you answer this question when you're 18 years old and God gives you the revelation and then you move on, and then you find yourself as a 25-year-old facing a new set of circumstances, facing new challenges and problems, you realize that you have a seven-year-old answer to this question that's not working for you anymore. And I think we actually need to keep asking these questions. We need to keep coming back to the foundational reasons for why we do what we do. We need to keep asking ourselves, who are we? Why am I here? And I think Christians, we're so good at thinking that we've got all the answers sewn up, but we need to keep asking the questions. And if you've come here tonight and you're asking questions, then I want to encourage you that that's a good thing. We need to keep asking questions. We need to keep searching for more and more revelation, because we never have all the answers. So why talk about identity? Why do it now? What's so significant about this point in time in our lives, in our community's journey together, that we would talk about this stuff? Well, I think there's a few reasons for that. And the first one is really simple, that it turns out identity is actually a major theme in the Scripture. Um, as I was preparing this series, um, we're, we're sort of doing like, for, for all the talks after tonight, we're looking at some of the key passages in the New Testament, particularly the talk about identity. And I sort of thought I'd find five or six really good meaty ones. But it turns out this identity question is actually right at the core of the Scriptures, and particularly the New Testament. So much of what the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament, um, so much of what he talks about is who we are in response to who God is. It's really important, and it's a massive topic in the Scriptures. But on top of that, I think that at the moment, identity is a really fundamental question that our society is asking. You open up the news on any given day, and people are arguing about this stuff. Who, who am I? You know, this whole thing of you do you, like the most important thing is that you can be who you are. I don't, you know, I don't actually fully disagree with that statement, but the, the problem that I have with the way that society answers that, that question is that um, society says that you define who you are, whereas I believe that God defines who you are. And so much of the public discourse that's going on at the moment is wrestling with this question of who gets to define who we are. And so many of the problems we're having is because we don't agree on the answer to that question. But finally, um, I, I studied psychology in, uh, in undergrad at uni, and I, I really love it. Um, I look at the, the world often through a kind of psychology lens. Um, but psychologists will tell us really, really clearly that our model of self, the, beliefs, the belief system that we have about who we are, it fundamentally changes the way that we live and relate to other people. If you're a person with really low self-esteem, it becomes really difficult to fully give yourself into relationships. It becomes really difficult to fully give yourself um, into the things that you're passionate about. And you'll find that actually your picture of self affects your life on every single level. And so I think what I'm trying to say from all of this, everything I've said so far, is that there is no one in this room tonight that this question doesn't apply to. We all need to be asking this question. And if you think you've got it all sewn up, then I'm going to ask you to kind of let that guard down a little bit, and be willing to ask the questions with us as we do this series. So tonight, um, we are so as as I said uh, earlier, the 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 form of this series it's going to be a journey through the New Testament and some of the key passages that talk about who we are and why we're here. But tonight we're going to actually start in the book of Genesis. Chapter 1, because the opening account of how humanity was created is really, really important and fundamental if we're going to have a discussion about identity. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Genesis 1. It's really easy to find because it's usually the first page. Um, Genesis 1, we're going to be reading a a short snippet tonight, starting from verse 26, but just while you're finding it, um, to give you some context for what we're about to read, this is the opening uh, creation account. Uh, with it, that we find within the Bible. It's a really famous text. Um, but one of the problems I think we sometimes get when we're reading from Genesis 1 is that when you're reading this, this account of how the world and humanity came to be, the, the, most, the most similar kind of text that we have in our Western 20th, 21st century mindset, um, it reads kind of like a science textbook. That's where you go if you want to find a story of how everything came to be. Um, but in the ancient Israelite context, I think they would have read it a little bit differently. You see, this text, it's not prose. It's not, it's not attempting to be an accurate description. This text we're about to read is actually a poem. Um, Genesis chapter 1 and the first couple of verses of chapter 2, um, they're this beautiful poem, and I kind of like to think of it, it's almost like the theme song of the Bible. Uh, And it's not so much trying to tell us what happened, but it's trying to tell us why it happened and who made it happen. So with that lens, let's just have a little bit of a read. We're starting from verse 26. Then God said, "...let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to, all, and to all the beasts of the earth and all of the birds of the air and all of the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from the, all the work of creating that he had done. It's quite a profound piece of scripture, isn't it? Um, and it's potentially a little bit cryptic. I wonder when that speaks to you. You read that piece. What do you get when you read that piece of scripture? For me, I actually think this, um, these few verses are so foundational to what we understand about who we are. And primarily because it makes three really key affirmations about humanity. The first thing that this, this scripture says is it affirms that we were created intentionally and we were created good. Now, I don't know what your beliefs are about the origins of the universe and humanity. But what this isn't saying is that we were an accident. It's not saying that we got here by chance. In the, in the time that this, this scripture was written, the ancient Israelites were living in this world where basically every, every nation that lived surrounding them believed that humanity was an accident Um, that humanity was the placing of of the foreign gods, that humanity was lowly and at the bottom of the pile in terms of everything that had been created. But what this, this scripture here is absolutely revolutionary for its time. It's saying that actually the one who made all of this, the mountains, the sea, the heavens and the stars, he made us intentionally and he made us good. And so that affirmation, I think, is really important. The second thing, I don't know if you noticed this, but um, there in verse 26, 27, it says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and all the creatures that move along the ground. And then a little bit further down, it says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God has given us, God has created us with this incredibly significant purpose. God's created this, this beautiful planet, this beautiful universe, and he's given us, He has given humanity the authority to rule over it, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to subdue the earth. Um, I think what, one of the other ways, that, that word subdue is really interesting. He says subdue the earth. The way that a lot of other translations have translated it in the past is um, to have dominion over all of the things. And we we've gotten that, that particular word has actually been really problematic because what, what some people have taken that in the past to mean is that basically we've been given the earth um, to do what we want with. And that's the reason why some Christians believe that we shouldn't really worry too much about the environment and about the planet I think that really misses the point of this scripture, doesn't it? You know, potentially a better way to understand the scripture is that he's given, God has given us stewardship over the earth. He's created this, this glorious creation. He's made it good and he's given us um, the authority to look after it on his behalf. What an incredibly, incredibly profound vocation he's given us. But the final thing, and this is where we get the title of our series, um, and this is just incredibly profound. Is it said God created man in his own image? Now, people have interpreted that in all sorts of different ways. There's a whole school of thought where people thought that, like, literally humanity physically resembled God, uh, which I find a little bit interesting. I don't think that's what the scriptures are saying. And I don't have time to fully unpack all of the theology around this idea of being made in God's image. But I want to give us a really simple analogy to, to help get a sense of what I think God is trying to communicate here when he creates humanity in his image. So I've got a photo that's going to come up on the screen. It's very stretched. Um, who's this? David. David. Very, uh, very. Well, it's, it's a statue of David uh, created by Michelangelo. Um, and the, and the, the whole, like... The whole thing of that thought exercise that you all say that's David, but I say actually that's not David, that's a statue of David. David died a long time ago, right? And actually if you want to get even more meta, you can say that's actually a photo of a statue of David, but we're not going to go down that route. (laughs) But the point is you look at that and many of us who who know uh, stuff about art say that's a tactically cropped photo of David. (laughs) And but what that does, so it's an image of David, this person who is in the Bible who's really, really well known for all of his exploits. And what this, what this image does is it calls to mind those stories. It calls to mind the likeness of David. It reminds you about his character. It reminds you about, about who he was and what he did It's In a sense, this statue of David points to the real David and helps remind us of who he is. And in exactly the same way, God has created us in his likeness as his image to point to him. And so to sum all of this up, to sum up what I believe this this passage is telling us about who we are and why why we're here um, is this beautiful analogy that N.T. Wright has. He says that mankind... Is kind of like an angled mirror. And our job is to reflect the glory of God to creation and reflect the praises of creation back to God. We have this incredibly significant role in creation, and that's the reason why we're here. Isn't that profound? But if that's why, if that's why and how we were created, then why does life look so different to that? Well, only two short chapters later, we run into a problem, and this problem is usually known as the fall. What happens is, and I'm going to summarize it for you so I don't have to read the whole two chapters of Scripture, but um, we, get this, we get this sort of like zoom-in um, version of the sixth day in Genesis 2 and 3, uh, where it describes the way that God um, created humanity and breathed his own breath um, into our nostrils, which is this like beautiful image of us having the breath of God within us. But God says He sort of puts humans in this beautiful garden where they have everything they need, and, and He says, "The whole, this is all yours, all of it. The only thing I ask is that you don't eat the fruit from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a bit random, but work with me here." So, so they're, they're sort of going about uh, their business, being, being humans and being fruitful and uh, eating from the garden and enjoying themselves. And this, this snake comes along. And the snake says, hey, you know that tree in the middle of the garden? You know, God knows that if you eat from that tree, then you'll be like him. And he doesn't want that. You should take a bite. It'd be great. And so they do. Uh, and it turns out that that makes God quite upset. The key, you know, the real stinker there is the lie that the enemy tells, that the serpent tells in the garden there. He says, if... If you eat from that tree, you'll be like God. But you know what? They were already like God. They were already like God. The first humans, they were made in his image. I want to ask you a kind of candid question here. If we look at the world and its present state and all of the problems that we face on a daily basis, all of the horrible things that we read about in history and also on the news, is all of that justified for one misstep? Honestly, that's a rhetorical question. I took, mentioned them earlier. But, but, but honestly, is, is all of what we see around us, is all of what we experience on a daily basis, is that really justified off the back of one error on behalf of the first humans? You know, I think when we ask that question, one of the problems is that we don't fully understand the issue, what the issue is here. You see, often when we, there's this thing that we Christians like to talk about. It's called sin. And normally when we talk about sin and when we read about sin in the Bible, the way that we normally interpret that is we think that sin is basically equivalent to bad behavior. Now, that's not entirely false. In fact, um, bad behavior is definitely part of the fruit of this problem of sin. But I want to suggest that sin actually goes a lot deeper than just our bad behavior. It's not just the naughty stuff that you do. You see, when, when the humans in the garden, when they ate from the tree, God had given them everything in all of creation to enjoy. And so when they ate from the tree, first of all, there was a break in relationship. I wonder if you've ever trusted someone with something really valuable to you. And they stuffed it up. You know, more often than not, it's not the thing that you're so worried about. It's actually, it's actually the relationship. It's the break in trust, isn't it? And so they broke trust with God. The second thing is that God had given them a really important purpose. Their, humanity's job, if you remember, was to reflect God's glory to creation and reflect the praises of creation back to God. And we squandered our purpose. We failed to meet the reason that we were created, but finally... It's kind of like that angled mirror. When we chose to go our own way, that angled mirror was shattered and this image that we've been created in was broken. Our ability to reflect God's goodness and be that, have that image-bearing capability was broken. And that's what we talk about when we talk about sin. Sin is not just the bad things we do. It's this, this fundamentally broken nature that humanity has, our inability to relate and trust to God tr- and trust God. It's so deep. It's so deep. And so what does God do about it? What does God do? Well, it turns out, we read in the New Testament that God had a solution. Before the the beginning of the world, before it even spoke light into existence, God had a plan, and his name is Jesus This man came around 2,000 years ago named Jesus. And um, Jesus, first of all, remember the first people, they, they broke their relationship with God. Well, well Jesus, he, he demonstrated perfectly how to do relationship with God. It says in the scriptures that Jesus with, was without sin. It, it doesn't just mean that he was perfectly well behaved when he was on earth. But Jesus, Jesus was born without that fundamentally brokenness, that fundamental brokenness of sin. And so he showed us how to have relationship with God again. Secondly, Jesus came and he restored our purpose, the purpose that we squandered back in the garden. He came proclaiming a new kingdom, a a kingdom where God is back on the throne where he belongs, where God is reigning over all creation, where God is put back in his rightful place And the invitation that Jesus has is to partner with him in bringing that kingdom to earth, in making things the way that they're supposed to be, in bringing goodness and glory and righteousness and love and peace back into the world. So he restores our relationship, he restores our purpose, but finally he also restores our identity. That question that we're asking, who am I? You see, on the cross... Jesus dies, and that, that sin, that broken nature, he breaks it. But he doesn't leave it there. When Jesus rose again from the grave, he gave us the ability to step into a new identity. Into a new identity, and that's his identity. There's this incredible passage, which we're actually going to look at in the very last talk of this series, but it's in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 21. And I did my best to remember it so I wouldn't have to flip there. It It says that he who had no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God. You know, people love to talk about the fact that Jesus died for us. And he did, absolutely. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't die for us, but more than that, Jesus died as us. When Jesus was on the cross, he took all of the brokenness. He took that sin, that fundamentally broken nature that every one of us has, and he nailed that to the cross. And when he rose again, he rose as a new creation, and he invites us into that new identity that he won when he rose from the dead. Our identity is not in what we do. It's not even in what we do do for God. It's not in our relationships. It's not in our families, although we can get some from that too. Fundamentally, at its core, our, our, our identity, that, that who we are question, that is found in a person and his name is Jesus. Now, I realize at this point that everything I'm saying is remarkably big picture. I'm a big picture thinker, so that's just how my brain works. But I want to kind of make it a little bit real for us. Um, and and I want to do that by telling you a story, and this is actually a story that Jesus told around two thousand years ago. Um, so I'm borrowing heavily from him. If you want to um, if you want to read along, it's in Luke 15. If you just want to make sure that I'm not just making things up, um, but I kind of want to paraphrase this a little bit because it's a story that I've heard like a million times. Uh, sometimes we call it the story of the prodigal son. Sometimes uh, we call it the prodigal of the of the the prodigal. The story of the the running father. But whatever you call it, um, it's this incredibly profound uh, story that Jesus uh, tells. And although I've heard it a lot of times, um, I realize that there's something that I've been missing from this story, that this story actually, I reckon, right at the core is all about identity. So what happens is Jesus tells his story about a father who has two sons. Now, this father, this family, they are presumably pretty wealthy they 've got a whole, bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of servants who work in the fields for them, um, so they 've got a really successful business, and these two sons are the two heirs of the father 's business. Um, and they 're they're, they're growing up, and I 'm going to take a guess and say that one of the sons was probably a teenager at this point, and he said to his father, "You know what?" This inheritance that I have, um, that that this this part of your estate that belongs to me, I actually want to cash that out now. Because I reckon I can do life better on my own. And he, now this you've got to understand. This is like that. That sounds like an awful thing to do to someone. But if you're in Jewish culture, that's like the worst thing that you can possibly do. Like that would be absolutely unspeakable in Jewish culture, and in pretty much any situation, the father would say, absolutely not, and he'd probably punish his son. But remarkably, in this moment, the father says, okay, it's yours. Take, take your part of the inheritance and, and go with my blessing, which is just bizarre. But that's what happens. Anyway, um, as, as teenagers uh, do, or early 20s or whatever, I'm, I'm making fun of you guys. I, I should stop. But um, as As people do, this son decides, "I've got all this money. I'm going to go traveling. I'm going to get. I'm going to buy the best clothes. I'm going to buy an awesome car. I'm going to find lots of girls, and I'm going to live it up. It's going to be awesome." And he does. And he goes. He travels. He he does all the wrong things. He spends his money on whatever he feels like at the time. But things start to get rough. Uh, the scriptures tell us that there was a famine in the land where he was, and he finds the bank account where he had his father's inheritance is empty. It's gone. And when you're in that kind of situation, it's pretty hard to get it back. And so he goes off, um, he, he finds whatever work he can, and he gets the absolute worst possible job that you can get. Uh, in this day, it's, um, it's feeding pigs, which were unclean animals. Um, in the in the Jewish culture, it, it'd be like it'd be like cleaning the floors in a nightclub. It's just it's like the lowest um, of low jobs. Not bagging anyone who cleans floors on a nightclub, by the way. I, ne- I need to stop using examples that might offend people, but please just work with me here. So he's he's got the the lowest of the low jobs, and he's as he's feeding these pigs, he thinks, you know, the servants in my father's house, the people who look after his business. They actually have it better than I do. And he, he hatches this plan. He sort of thinks, well, I've, I've ruined everything. Like, I have absolutely stuffed it. I've lost my father's inheritance. I, I, I have nothing to offer him. I can't pay him back. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to go back, and I'm going to ask to be a servant in his house. I'm gonna, I'll do whatever job he asks, and I will... I just, I want to be back there because at least I know that I'll have food. And so he he tra- he starts to travel back. He hops on the plane or, or the donkey or however he felt like traveling. Um, he, he starts going back to, uh, to his father's house. And you can just kind of, have you ever had one of those moments where you've done the wrong thing and you're sort of like rehearsing the speech that you Like everyone's nodding, yeah. So this is a common experience that we all have. So I can just picture this son rehearsing this speech in his his head and just just imagining what his father's reaction is going to be. You know that feeling? You're like, I I have no idea how this is going to go, but I'm just going to give it a crack. But when he's almost home, the most extraordinary thing happens. Now, I'm going to stop the story there to build the tension. Um, but the, the, the thing that I really want to point out here is the mindset of the son. He's going back. He's saying, I've ruined everything. I, 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 he's reached this place where he realizes that he's stuffed it up and that he needs his father, but his mindset that he's coming back to his house with is, I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to be a slave. I'm going to just do whatever needs to be done um, so that I can at least just just have food in my belly. And, you know, I think so many of us, whether whether consciously or whether deep inside, I think so many of us live with this mindset. You know, when we look at God and who he is, when we read about this Jesus, we think, you know what, that sounds great, but I'm not worthy. We have this servant mindset and when we come back to God, we sort of have our, our speech rehearsed. And we say, you know what, God, I'm just I'm going to sweep the floors. I'm going to do whatever you need. Um, I'm, not, I'm not worthy, but here I am. But that's not what happens. You see, the father, when the son's um, a long way off, the father sees his son returning home and the father runs out to meet him. You know, the father doesn't stay in the house and wait for him to come all the way home. The father actually runs out to meet him on the road. And that's what God does for us. When God sees you turn around, when he sees you coming home, he runs out to meet you and he'll meet you on the road. And here's the son. He, he starts to make this speech. He starts to say, Father, I've lost everything. I have squandered your wealth. I'm so sorry. If I can ever repay you, I will. But I just... And, and the father cuts him off and he says, no, you're not a servant. You will never be a servant because you were, you were never meant to be a servant. You are my son. You are my child. You left and you were as good as dead, but now you're alive. And rather than putting his son to, to work and making him scrub floors, he gives he takes off his robe, and he puts it on his son's shoulders. He restores his dignity. He takes off his ring, which in those days, it was, it was like his signature. It was a, a piece of your authority. He gives the son the ring and says, I'm giving you back the authority that you lost. He puts sandals on his feet, which I believe represents trust. It's saying, you know what? You've got bare, dirty feet, but I'm going to I'm going to put sandals on your feet because I trust you to go wherever you need to go. And he, he throws a party in honor of his son. Now, that makes absolute, when you think about it, that makes absolutely no logical sense. You know, if you think about the wealth of the father and you think about how much this son had lost, why should the father do that? If you think about the injustice of what the son did to the father, why should the father do that? Why should the father welcome him back? But that's the kind of God that we worship tonight. That's the kind of God that we've sung about. You know, I think so many of us, when we're asking this this identity question, when we're trying to work out who we are right in the core, I think so many of us, have this servant mindset where we believe that we're unworthy of the love of God. And you know what? In a sense, we are. But you know what? God, God is standing with arms open wide. He runs out to meet you on the road. That's the kind of God that we worship. And he reinstates us as sons and daughters. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Jesus. You know what? I reckon that there's some of us here tonight, and I don't know, I don't know your story. I don't know if you've um, been a Christian in the past and you've, um, you've sort of walked away from your faith. Or if you've, you've never really heard, like if, if everything I'm sharing is new to you tonight, I don't know what the story is, but I think some of us are at that moment in our lives where we need to just make that decision to turn around and start walking back home. And you know what happens is the Father runs out to meet you. The father runs out to meet you on the road, and so I reckon tonight some of us need to make that decision to turn around and come home. So can we stand together? Now, like I said, I don't know your story, I, and you know what? I reckon there's maybe some people here tonight where it looks like you, you looks like you're doing the Jesus thing on the outside. And people would look at you and say, yeah, you're a Christian, but inside you haven't been doing that. Um, like I said, maybe, maybe this is all news to you and you're hearing it for the first time. Um, you know, maybe you've, maybe you've been running from God for a long time. And it's time to come home. But if, if that's you, if that, re- if that relates to you in any way, I'm going to ask you to do something really brave. What we love to do is we love to pray for you. Because um, when... You know, when you make a significant decision like that, when you decide to come home to Jesus, one of the best things that you can possibly do is you can pray. You can invite Christ back into your heart. And so can we, can we just like all close our eyes right now? And I'm just going to pray. And if that's your response, then just pray this. pray this in your heart with me. Lord God, I realize that I haven't been doing things Your way for a long time. God, I've I've heard about Your goodness tonight, and everything in me feels like I should only des- like I only deserve to be a servant. But God, I've I've heard this I've heard this thing that that maybe You actually want to accept me home as Your child. So Lord, in this moment, I decide to turn around, and I'm coming back home. I'm coming back home. I'm coming back home. And we're just going to pause for a moment. Because I believe what the Lord wants to do is if you've, if, you've just, if you've just prayed that prayer along with me, I believe that God wants to meet with you in this moment. So we're just going to wait. And I'm just going to invite um, God's Spirit to come and move in our midst. It's nothing weird. It just means that we're going to um, let God respond to our prayer. So Holy Spirit, Come.